Good evening, everybody. Come on, one person. Is, is this thing on? <laughs> Just kidding, I know. So in, in my experience, there's two types of people in the world. There's people who like chocolate and fruit together, and there's people that don't. I, I'm part of the, the latter group. I, I actually find it repulsive, chocolate and, and fruit together. When I, Sarah and I, she's from Quebec, for those of you who don't know, and we lived in Quebec for a few years, and Les Quebecois, or particularly Les Quebecois, really love their chocolate fondue with fruit and lots of both. And so I found myself for like over two and a half years either getting my good fruit ruined by having chocolate poured over it or my good chocolate ruined by having it poured over fruit. It was a dark time in my life, my friends. <laughs> Just out of curiosity though, who, who likes fruit and chocolate together? So I'm, what, I'm in the minority. Okay, now who has, who has taste? Who is, yeah, there we <laughs> But clearly, this is one of those things that it is just a matter of taste, right? There's no right or wrong answer. But there's other things in life that, that they, two things or, or a number of things will necessarily go together. So I think of a, a baseball bat and a baseball. You need both of them if you want to play baseball. If one of them are missing, you can't play the game. Or, and I'm, and I'm talking about traditional pies, but in, in pie, when you think about pies, you need a pie filling, you need a pie crust. If you don't have both of them, you don't have pie. Or the flip side, when there's certain things that, that necessarily don't go together. So if I were to make or wanted to make a fruit salad, I wouldn't take fruit and say pebbles, like rocks, right? Wouldn't put those two things together. Or if you think of uh, school lessons, like you, you never see the learning how to run with scissors class or, hey, like let's go play in the street without looking both ways class. We, we understand that school and those sorts of lessons, they just don't go together. So we've been learning in our series, we've been going through Philippians, for those of you who uh, haven't been here, and, uh, and among other things, we've been learning the need for community, this need for unity inside community. And the fact that uh, that unity or that will help the community stick together. So last week, we learned about the selflessness of Jesus and how that is actually the glue that will help hold the community together. If everybody is, is looking towards the other and looking uh, to do that, especially as it's manifested in, in the lives of the people who's ten, who claim to follow him, that will hold everybody together. So community and selflessness go really, really well together. So today, Paul is our, the writer of, of our letter, Philippians. He's gonna be taking aim at something that actually breaks apart community. It's a community breaker, namely complaining and the arguing that can go on after that. See, I, I don't know about you, but this is, this is one of those ones, man, that really hits home as, I, as I'm preparing, as I'm thinking about it, because I really, would you think I would like to complain with the amount that I do it? I, I don't like it, but I have, I, I seem to be bent towards it. So no matter what the topic is, like government or sports or the weather or relationships or, or whatever it is, there's traffic, there's always something that can go on that can trigger me wanting to complain. I'm sure I'm probably the only one in the room where that, that happens, but... And, and see, one of the cool things about our world is it, it is wonderfully diverse, right? Our community here is wonderfully diverse. 
But with diversity often comes the potential for, for, for friction, right? For different personalities. We're going to be doing things in community that we may not always like. We, we may... Uh, there may be people that we don't get along with, our personalities kind of rub. There may be uh, certain actions that we decide to take as a community where we don't like the direction. We're not always going to get our way when we think about what we're going to be doing. And so all of this is a fertile soil for complaints to grow. So Paul, our writer, he's writing from prison. By the way, if you weren't uh, doing, or if you didn't know, and he's wanting his readers to know that in the community that he's writing to, but in general, all communities, that this just won't do. Because, I mean, first of all, nobody wants to listen to complaining, right? Like that's, uh, you've probably heard it said, why complain, no one listens anyway, or, you know, how are you, how are you doing? Well, I tell you, but you, you wouldn't want to listen anyway. So if I'm going to be complaining about that second, and most imp- or more importantly, Complaining impacts the very fabric of a society and can actually taint it. You can start to see it as as it grows. So, in fact, this is the the big takeaway that I want us to be able to to have from our uh, message today. And I made it rhyme. Complaining is restraining. Complaining is restraining. Complaining, when we do that, it actually holds us back. It, It takes issues and makes them worse because complaining doesn't actually solve problems. Right? Often, I think we think, oh, I'm just talking it through. But it's actually just exacerbating. It's making things worse. Complaining, though, as people, and I know I can speak for myself, it comes really, really easy to me. It's very easy, but it's also so destructive. So Paul, he's continuing his letter to the Philippians with this warning right on the heels of that beautiful passage about Jesus' selflessness that complaining will hold us back. Complaining is restraining. It holds us back from following Jesus and making, it makes our community unattractive. Any community. And so that's what's really cool about this message is a person can, can believe and, and follow Jesus or a person can think that this is all ridiculous and it doesn't matter. The, the core message is helpful for any of us just as human beings and if we want to be in community with one another, we know that com- complaining can hold us back. The difference being, though, of course, is if someone doesn't claim to follow Jesus, there's no authority here. There's no command that you have to follow. You can just do whatever you want. But if you consider yourself a follower of Jesus, if you're in the church, we're under obligation to at least address this, to talk about it, to try to work on it, if we want to have this community that's attractive We don't really have a choice. So we're going to jump in. We're in chapter 2 in our series, and we're going to be starting in verse 12. And I'm reading out of the NIV version this week. So verse 12, chapter 2, book of Philippians. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. I'll stop there. So whenever we're reading our Bible, we always want to be paying attention to words like therefore. It's a bridge word. It just helps us with context, particularly when you start in a place like this. Because whenever we see a word like therefore, a little voice should go off in our head and say, what we're about to read next depends on what I just read. Right? So there's a a flow there. So we want to be taking stuff out of context. We're going to see that even more importantly in a minute. And what happened right before this was a a very short hymn or a creed that the early church, we talked about this last week, that the early church used to discuss and to 
as an object of, or a way of liturgically going through the selflessness of Jesus, his example to us to live in such a way that is beautiful, that is good, that is always looking to the other to serve other people. And by Jesus' obedience to the Father, to God the Father, he glorified him through that. So because of that great truth that Paul has just been talking about, and in that same theme, Paul's asking his readers now to continue the standard that they've actually set for themselves. It's interesting when you read that they say, as you always have obeyed. So these, these people are coming Uh, This church that he's writing to have been known to be an obedient church. That's the standard they set for themselves. So, and it's it's not like in class, you know, go back to your your school days and all of a sudden a substitute teacher's coming and all, you know what, breaks loose, right? Insanity just ensues because the sub's there and, and whatever. Paul's saying that whether I'm there or I'm not there, you guys are all still obeying. You're you're still doing what you need to do. You're doing what is necessary. See, this whole verse is actually a really, really good reminder for us to always consider context when we hear things or when we read things, because the second part of that is really interesting. We don't, especially when we're reading through our Bibles, we want to take care of the context, but when we're just living everyday life, when we, when we hear half of a conversation or someone says something to us, we always need to know that there's, there's a backstory to everything, right? Someone bites my head off. Maybe they've had a bad day. Uh, and if, so we shouldn't jump to conclusions. If we don't know, we should ask. It's always good to ask questions. Fact finding. Uh, Sarah, a couple of years ago, had a hairstylist, and uh, she gave me permission to use this. And when her Sarah's hairstylist was a little girl, she was at the grocery store with her mom. And as they were going through, they, it was a hot day. It was a long day. Everyone was tired. And she kept asking her mom for things. And her mom was like, no, no, no. And her patients were wearing thinner and thinner and thinner. And they, they find they're about up at the, the cash, the, to the cashier and she saw a granola bar. Mom, can I have the granola bar? And she says, fine, you can have the granola bar, but you have to wait to eat it until you get home. She says, okay. Like 30 seconds later, they're in the lineup. Mom, can I have the granola bar now? No, you're going to get it when you get home. That was the only part of the conversation that the cashier heard. And so she called the cops. And the woman, her mom got arrested and charged with some form of child abuse. So, of course, she was vindicated once she went to court. But, friends, context is everything. It's always helpful to know the bigger story. So, when we read something like the second half of this verse where it says, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Sometimes if you were just to take that part, you might think, oh, I'm supposed to to save myself and be really scared of God. That might be a a way that we might take that. But nothing can be further from the truth, and we're going to break this down. So what's happening there is Paul, as he's been going through the letter, his consistent emphasis has been on unity in the church. It's been linking everything back to the church context And as he's talking about working out the salvation, essentially what he's saying is taking the salvation that they've been given. So he's talking to the church. He's talking to people who follow Jesus. Take the salvation that you've been given and use it as a foundation. Work out of that and do it from this church context. That's what he has in mind. So it's a call to restore harmony in the church by working and serving one another. 
So you want to think of it as putting on a display that Paul already is assuming is there, this love for one another because of their claim to follow Jesus. So as far as the fear and trembling part, this has nothing to do with being scared in the, in the sort of sense that we might think. This has everything to do with the posture that a human being would take when they come into relationship or come in front of a holy God. There's a sense of humility. There's a sense of understanding who we are in comparison to him. And then finally, where he talks about commune, or continuing, and, and for me, this is the, this is the hardest part. This uh, continuing to work out the salvation with fear and trembling is difficult. And uh, Pastor Eugene Peterson puts it like this. He says, it is this long obedience in the same direction. This is what he calls it, this idea of perseverance. This long obedience in the same direction, which is the mood of the world, or which the mood of the world does so much to discourage. So what he means by that is that there's always going to be something going on that wants to distract us from, from following Christ. Something either good or something bad. It's going to want to, to uh, take our eyes off him. So the good will, will distract us. It'll, it'll pull our eyes away from whatever it is that we should be focusing on. Whereas the bad just shuts our eyes completely to it as we go through some sort of pain or suffering. So for us to fix our path on or fix our eyes on the path of Jesus and to be able to follow him and stay on that same path is to see life in all of its beauty, but also all of its ugliness. Because that's where Jesus is calling us to follow him and that's everywhere. That's everywhere. We can't be restrained from being able to go. Verse 13 for it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. God is working in us, acting in us to fulfill his good purpose. And I don't know about you, but sometimes when I read verses like this, I get this, I can get this idea in my mind that I'm supposed to sort of just sit back and enjoy the ride, right? I think I talked about this a couple weeks ago, used the image of a dog riding a car, right, just along for the ride, and, like, out the window, and that's sort of what we're doing. God's driving, and, and we're just sticking our head out the window and, and having a good time, or when I was in addiction recovery, uh, the big slogan was, let go and let God. Some of you may have heard that before, or maybe you've heard the song, and it goes back to the driving one, Jesus, take the wheel, right? Like, just, I'm going to sit back, and, and God, you're just going to do all the work, and I'm going to do none of the work, I can remember as a kid, I, I really liked cars. And this one time we went to a, like this little amusement thing. And there was this car ride. And I got to go on it. And I was really, really excited, right? This is going to be lots of fun. But quickly I realized, as we, the, the little ride started to go, that it didn't matter what I did. Like, I could turn the wheel. I could spin it. The little pedals, I could kick them or, or whatever. And nothing would happen. I had zero control over this little car. Like, I don't know if it was on tracks or if it was being pulled or whatever dark magic was making this thing move. But whatever it was, I couldn't do anything to, to change it. So it was, it was no fun. Like, I, I, had, I had no skin in the game. There was, no, there was no fun in it at all. The biblical writers, as well as our own experience, tells us that God has given us responsibilities. We have responsibilities that we can either choose to obey or we can choose to walk away from, to disobey. 
The, the interesting thing is, is that God has given this power, this incredible power to a church full of people, right? Full of, full of people like me who are prone to wander off into funny directions sometimes. We ignore sometimes the power he's given us and we'll go our own way. Sometimes we wander into areas that has us acting or behaving in ways that don't represent him at all. People are unsure who this person is that we claim to follow because we are acting contrary to his behavior. Other times we get caught up into doing something that I call playing church where we get caught in sort of going through the motions, right? We, we kind of show up, we sing some songs, we listen to a message, we go home the next week, get the Bible off the shelf, right? And not back, back to it, right? And of course, I'm not talking about our particular context, I'm talking about in general. We, as we go through, as we do things over and over again, can get in a bit of a rut. And, and it stops feeling like it has any sort of power over us. See. Or, or we, that we have any power in it, that we have any sort of uh, skin in the game, as it were. And so God, obviously, he can do good with anything. Like, he can work through uh, either apathy, or he can work through us fumbling and bumbling our way through. He can make the best of it, in other words. But the question I ask myself sometimes when I find myself slipping into apathy or something like that is, why in the world would I want God to have to make the best of it? Right? Why wouldn't I want to try to, to give him my all? Because, I mean, he's empowered his church, his people, to be able to take these responsibilities and do something with them, to actually accomplish his work. Like, that's, it, it, it sounds, because I think if we've been in church for a while, we say that a lot, but it's actually pretty amazing, it's unbelievable that that is actually the case, that we have such a profound responsibility. He doesn't overpower our will to accomplish it. He enables it. He enables this will. He empowers it and then uses it to accomplish the seemingly impossible, to accomplish his good purposes. What is that purpose? The purpose then is to see people come into a relationship with him, to glorify him. So how do we as the church then, if we're part of the church, how, how do we accomplish that? How do we make that happen? Well, first of all, to tap into that power, we need to have humility. We need to have humility. We need to admit that we can't do this on our own. We are human. He is God. I've been reading Tarzan a lot. So I remember when I was writing this down, I was like, you know, me human, you God. Sort of like the, I'm, you know, me Tarzan, you Jane thing. But it, it kind of fits, right? See, we've been teaching Cadman, or seemingly for forever, and from what I understand, it's not going to end anytime soon, but we've been trying to teach him to ask for help. Cadman's our son, and he, uh, he'll be trying to move something, or get around something, or, or turn the pages of a book, and he'll, all you'll hear is this, right? Like, just this grunting rage that's going on as he's trying to figure it out, and we're like, dude, just ask for help, right? Just ask for help. Just ask for help. God wants us to ask him for help as we try to accomplish what he's going to do. And, and where, do, where do I need help? Verse 14, do everything without grumbling or arguing. Do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. So as much as I wanted to, like, so I, I, most of you most likely know the, the Bible, at least the New Testament, originally written in Greek. So sometimes we'll go back and we'll look at that to see 
about some of these words. As much as I wanted that word everything to mean not everything, it, it turns out that the, the word actually means everything, to do everything without crum, uh, grumbling or arguing. See, this is a really, really high standard uh, that Paul, <laughs> it's an unbelievably high standard that Paul is setting for him. And the problem with this standard, our inner person screams, is that standard doesn't take into consideration what a jerk I think so-and-so is and how hard it is to work with them. And this standard doesn't take into consideration how I wouldn't have planned that event like that. And now I have to deal with the fallout of the incompetence, right? Like it, the standard isn't taking any of that into consideration. But nevertheless, that's the standard that's, that's being set for us. And this is one of the things that I think is, is really, really cool about uh, the, you know, the rules, the commands that we find in the Bible is that they're, they're not just like sort of random at least when it comes to stuff like this, is this isn't just random, oh, I just, I'm gonna just throw out this arbitrary command and, and just let's see if we can make them follow it kind of thing. This is actually so important because it, it works. There's a pragmatic reason to get this to work for us, right? Because not only does it help the community, it helps us. Like I know how I feel when I don't complain. It's amazing. But nevertheless, it's still the standard and it's still a tough standard to hit. Because especially when we look at, remember the context, Paul's writing this right on the heels and in light of Jesus' sacrifice of going to the cross for everybody, and he did it without complaining. See, again, like, these, these messages, these sermons, we're having to sit in this for hours and hours and hours, it is on, like, it weighs on me as I go. And I was doing this thing, actually, at this one part where... I think I've told you guys before, I'll do this sometimes. When I have, I say something out loud, and I'm like, whoa, that wasn't good. I'll imagine that I'm saying it. I'll have this imaginary conversation with Jesus where he's sitting across the table from me. And so I had a conversation. Uh, I relived a conversation where I was complaining and talking about something that was, I was, that was annoying me to, to Jesus sitting across the table. And he's like, really? That's, that's bothering you that bad, hey? It's, uh, if it wasn't so sad, it would be funny. But see, Paul's reasoning for avoiding this behavior is clear, right? Because he, he writes, we see, the words, so that. And he's saying, he says, so that, do this, so that, to show that if we don't refrain from complaining, we don't refrain, we will be restrained from accomplishing what it is that we should be doing, which is fulfilling God's good purposes. So that complaining is actually, it's, it would be holding us back. It would be restraining. And part of that purpose involves us all becoming Ready for that standard again? Blameless and pure. Blameless and pure. So again, Paul is calling to that high standard. Why? Why is he calling us to that standard? As, as Cadman's getting older, I'm noticing more and more in him, me. I, I, I'm starting to see my mannerisms in him and, and little bits of behavior. And I'm like, oh man, right? Like this, like what I'm doing is, is actually imprinting on him, Chris Ross, our children's pastor, was here earlier, and he made the uh, the use the illustration of wet cement, right? And then he said, like children are, are in a way like wet cement; you can leave impressions. But I so he's reflecting me in some ways to the world. If someone considers themselves to be a Christian or a follower of Jesus, they are necessarily 
a child of God. A child of God. So if the Christian community is truly representing their heavenly father, then the community will naturally start to become uniformly pure, uniformly blameless. As, as we seek, as we hold each other up, like, friends, this is why we need each other so bad, is because we need to be little, almost mirrors for one another, to lift each other up, to hold each other accountable, to, to help each other understand God's grace, but to lift us up, help lift us up when we fail, because we're going to fail, right? But we need each other to, to, to come alongside one another and spur each other on, as Hebrews says, to love and good works. So you can almost think of it as like God's style, right? Like God's got style. And, and part of God's style or God's style should permeate our community, right? His characteristics, his goodness, his truth, his beauty. And specifically in this thing, in this uh, passage, the, the part of God that God isn't a complainer. God doesn't complain. And that should be part of God's style. There's a book by Fyodor Dostoevsky called Brothers Karamazov. It's an awesome book, and there's this character in it, a uh, main character named Alyusha Karamazov. And he, the book starts off, and he's a, a kind of a monk in a monastery, and uh, he gets sent out into the world by his elder. And Alyusha's really, really good at loving people. He's this, he's this very caring, just incredible person, and his character contrasts with, first of all, the atheism of his brother Ivan, but then also with the, the nasty sort of machinations of his family. Like, they, they, they're doing a bunch of crazy stuff, and the world's doing a bunch of crazy stuff. And so his, his behavior, his, uh, the way he does things, his style, it really contrasts with the rest of the book. And so he's known for being kind and being forgiving. And his words that he uses build people up rather than tear them down. And so some characters in the book look at Elisha as he's, that he's a bit naive, right? He, he doesn't really know the real world, but everybody in the book respects him. See, some people might say if we're trying to exhibit or, or uh, the characteristics of God, the characteristics of Jesus, that we might be naive, that we might be irrelevant, that we might not be cool and therefore have no impact. That might be what they think we look like or that we're boring. This is what Paul says we'll do. Halfway through verse 15, then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. You will shine like stars in the sky. I used to live in an apartment, and uh, with I had a bunch of roommates, and we had, there was a, in the living room. There's this light fixture, and it had these two things. It didn't say on the box that it was really good at these extra features. One, it was really good at attracting bugs, and the second thing it was really good at was trapping them. It was fantastic at it, and so my friends and I were were quite busy, and, and roommates and whatever, and we're coming and going, and started to notice that the living room was getting dimmer and dimmer as, as time was going on because it actually, this, this light fixture had a third good feature. It was fantastic at killing the bugs that it attracted and then trapped. So the, the light in the room was, was slowly dimming as the, 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 the body count <laughs> raised up. So, you know, mmm, right? Went from chocolate-covered fruit to dead bugs in a light fixture. The, the circle is complete. When you think about it, community in a, is, is a closed, we're a closed group in a lot of senses, right? Like, it, sorry, I shouldn't say a closed group, an enclosed group as, as we journey together, as we do life together. And as, or if 
Complaining is part of our DNA. It's part of our style as a group. It's, it, it's going to pile up. It's going to start to show. And it's hard for others to look in on a community and see that light when all of that other junk, if we let that sort of thing pile up, it starts to get in the way. Paul says instead we're supposed to shine like stars in the sky. One of the things I love about living this far out is, is the lack of light pollution and being able to, to go outside and look. Like when was the last time you walked outside and, and took a few minutes to really look up and to appreciate the stars in the sky? It's beautiful, isn't it? It's awe-inspiring. Just the, just the power, the vastness of it, of God's creation is incredible. And Paul's saying that we, as a community, if we're doing what we're supposed to be doing, we would actually shine like those stars, but we wouldn't do it necessarily in the sky. We would actually do it like we're here on earth. And if anybody, I hope not too long, has ever looked at the sun, you know that it leaves an impression. So he's saying that our, our loveliness as a community should leave an impression, a lasting impression on people as they gaze in and see that. This was... Paul's hope and his dream for his community. So he writes, and this is how he closes off through verse 18, and then I will be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain. But even if I'm being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and I rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. I just love that, that picture that he gives of a just loving father for this community and how much he rejoices in them and wants the best for them. Because that's what this is always about, right? This is always about our heavenly father wanting the best for us. So you're probably wondering if I'm just going to stand up here and complain about complaining or if I'm actually going to say something constructive or, or how we can maybe potentially proclaim or complain less. But I do, I want to encourage uh, all of us by sharing uh, something that I read. A a writer named Alexi Landis, uh, she tried to quit complaining intentionally for a week and did. And then she wrote down some of the things she learned and I grabbed three for us. So the first thing she says is she argued less. By intentionally not complaining through a week, she found she argued less. She writes, I'm not exactly one to pick a fight, but I noticed how many dumb arguments I can have in a week. If my fiance Alex said something I disagreed with, I couldn't immediately react. So this helped me not to snap. Surprise, surprise. And more importantly, it made me think before anything came out of my mouth. I'm pretty sure we've been told since kindergarten, think before you speak. But I noted how often I neglect this simplest piece of advice. Guilty, right? So the first thing is is we can think, just practice thinking before we speak. Number two, negativity is a state of mind. She writes, when you stop yourself from uttering negative speech, you begin to notice how negative the thought process tends to be, the stuff that doesn't come out. Surely I didn't verbally complain when I was tired or annoyed, but I still continued thinking them. She continued thinking about the complaints. And as much as negative speech can wear you down, negative thoughts are just as dangerous. So they sort of work as a, as a cancer for our, our minds or our souls. So 
Uh, my suggestion is, is for us to take our thoughts captive. The Bible, or uh, the writers of the Bible can uh, encourage us to take our thoughts captive. And my suggestion is to think through Philippians 4.8. So that's finally, brothers or sisters, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. So I find as, as I think through that, it, it can help take you, me through negative thinking. And so the third thing she noticed is that she prayed more. And this is the piece de resistance. Did I say that right, babe? Did I get it? Did I? <laughs> Julian's like, no. Even the English people know that was wrong. Uh, she prayed more. She writes, if I was forced to turn the negative into positive, I turned to God. And my spirit felt nourished. So my encouragement is, is to take Philippians 4.8 and to pray through it. What is true in this situation? God, help me see what is just, what is pure, what is lovely. Pray through the issues. Pray through the day. Ask God for help as he wants us to. See, friends, at the end of the day, I want us to be able to see that the, the main focus as we look at this or we look at anything, it shouldn't be on complaining less, right? That shouldn't be our main focus, even though complaining is restraining. We don't want to be doing that. This isn't also about becoming more likable or becoming more popular. What this is all about is being free to put our thoughts and our words where they belong, and that's in service to Lord Jesus. If we do that, then the complaining, it will cease. It will take care of itself. People may like us, they may not like us, but we'll be loving them and that's what really matters. And that is what will glorify God. Let's pray. Father, thank you again so much for this time that we can be here together and, and to uh, hear from you in your word. Thank you for Paul for writing this down and thank you for the Philippian church for their long obedience in the, in the same direction. It is uh, humbling to know that we stand on the shoulders of giants and that the church has been going for thousands of years now and, and people in places just like this have been carrying the gospel and using it to, to transform lives. You've been using them to transform lives, to impact people, to help them, to love them through things like the food sustainability program or soccer camps or worship services, Lord. The, there's no end to the amount of ways that you can bless people to help us know you better, to help us love you better, and to help us love one another better. So, Lord, as we think about this concept of complaining, help us to, be, to have the mind of Christ, as Paul continually is reminding us to do in this letter, to have the mind of Jesus, to follow him, to emulate him, to mimic him, uh, which is ultimately mimicking you, our Heavenly Father. We, we want to be your children. We want to uh, be part of your mission. And so, Lord... Help us do that well. We're asking for your help. We need your spirit. Empower us. We pray in your name. Amen.